Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. There have been a lot of big changes for me personally this month, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all for being so supportive of the show and being so understanding during times where we haven't been able to get episodes out exactly on time. I hope the double episodes released one after the other last time was something at least to make up for the slight delay. And in future, if big changes or emergencies happen in the same way, then I'll try to do those double features. Or at least one extra long roundtable or something to fill in the gap. Hopefully, though, now that I've graduated, moved to my new home state of Minnesota, and barring any Marie-related joint explosions, we should be all set to release each week on Wednesday, with roundtables and full episodes switching back and forth. This episode would not have been possible in particular without the help of my research team, including Megan Gall, Nassim Jamnia, Dan Aceta, Justin Ramberger, Denara Andarova, and of course, Marie Mayhew. Thanks to them, this is probably one of the strongest episodes in terms of historical and just background research. This week's topic is one that I have been pretty interested in for a long time, mostly because it's one of the few paranormal topics that I felt a personal connection to. Today we'll be talking about shadow people, the ghostly or near-ghostly apparitions people claim to often see out of the corner of their eyes. With the most extreme cases revolving around literal beings of inky darkness, reaching out from the void to horrify and haunt those in the living world. Now, I said that I have some personal connection to this phenomena, and the reasoning here is that, frankly, I wonder at times if I've seen shadow people, or at least something akin to what may be mistaken for a shadow person by those who have experienced that phenomena as well. Now, I'm not talking about me having a physical interaction or altercation with a being of pure darkness, as some have claimed, but rather what I've always taken to be simple tricks or mistakes of vision that I think potentially could have been mistaken for shadow people by others. So, for example, I often mistake movements of what appear to be black objects just out of the corner of my eye for my cats. And this has been going on since forever. I remember as a kid being terrified of my basement stairs in particular, because I was certain that the dark objects I would sometimes see in my peripheral vision, or which I could just kind of, I don't know, I guess sense behind me, would surely one day catch my leg as I walk up the stairs and drag me back down to my doom. Sort of standard little kid being scared of their basement stuff, but something that has always stuck with me and made me particularly drawn to others with similar stories. And cases where these stories seem to become more serious than simple frightened kid stuff. And this phenomena has become linked to other similar ideas out there in the paranormal soup. One particularly fascinating link is to the idea of the nightmare, a literal horse which at night would seemingly sit on one's chest, causing shortness of breath, paralysis, and extreme terror as an unseen or only partially visible specter appeared to be watching the proceedings. This today is known as sleep paralysis, but in the past has been thought to be caused by a variety of paranormal entities, and even today the phenomena of alien abduction is often mixed in with a sleep paralysis story. On tonight's episode, we will discuss the varieties of shadow people stories, how they link to historical cases of shadowy beings and specters, and what physiological or natural explanations might there be for such cases. So shut off the lights, pull out your spookiest flashlight, and prepare for this week's episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Tonight's episode, Shadow People! My first introduction to shadow people as a phenomena was sometime around middle school, 
So the years 2001 to 2003. I had a classmate tell me over lunch that he had a sleep paralysis experience pretty recently. One that he was certain was caused by a dynamic presence in his home. This guy was very religious, although I knew him mostly from playing a game called Slaps at the lunch table. Basically a game where you slap each other's hands until the other person gives up in pain. So like, yeah, a totally normal childhood acquaintance. So he explained to me that one night he woke up completely unable to move and hardly able to breathe. He felt a great pressure on his chest, almost like it was going to cave in his lungs and that his arms and legs hurt from not being able to push against some unseen force. After a little while, he began to notice a small black shape in the corner of the room, in the darkness. One that didn't grow, but which he was certain was responsible for his current state. And the thing almost radiated a terrible and horrifying presence. He described being more scared than he could ever remember having been in the past, and how the thing seemed like it wanted to choke him to death. Eventually, his breathing came back to normal and he found himself able to move his arms and legs again, although I think he described not really remembering how it stopped, just kind of waking up in the morning with this vivid and horrible memory. And of course, despite the fact that the story was told underneath fluorescent lighting, in a room stinking of lemon pledge and public school cafeteria meat, I was absolutely shaken. I was so comically scared this was going to happen to me, and so I immediately went online when I got home to Google about the topic. Which brought me to the, at that time, pretty hot topic of shadow people. I can't recall exactly where I read about them online, but honestly, if I was the nerdy middle schooler that I know I was, it was probably somewhere like on the Something Awful forums or some paranormal image board somewhere. I read that they were dark masses, sometimes taking on the shape of humans, often taking specific shapes, in fact, for all sorts of people who either appeared at night to terrorize you from afar while you were in bed, or who appeared out of the corner of your eye in your peripheral vision. Sometimes they could choke you. Other times it seemed they started small and then grew more and more powerful over time, seemingly growing off of your fear until they became powerful enough to move objects or cause poltergeist-like activity. In other cases, they simply watched you, sometimes in oddly anachronistic clothing, such as a top hat and a three-piece suit other times taking on strange shapes like elongated spiders or black blobs. Their eyes were said to glow red or orange, although just as often they appeared without eyes at all, just black masses that stood out as the darkest part of a darkened room. And they didn't just appear at night either. They would appear in the daytime out of the corner of your eye, or just behind you, or maybe you could just feel them there, causing the hairs on the back of your neck to stand up when you were alone in your house. And interestingly, they often had a decidedly male presence to them, where even if you couldn't tell what their gender was by their clothing or by their facial features, you could just kind of tell. They seemed to have a menacing, musty, and manly presence. Stupid, sexy shadow hunks! Probably the modern story of shadow people really became popular on that bastion of all paranormal stories, Coast to Coast AM, where in 2001, an interview on the show with a Native American elder named Thunderstrikes, also known as Harley Swifty or Reagan, asked listeners to call up or send in their own drawings or stories of experiences with shadow people, who Thunderstrikes was talking about as a part of Native American folklore. Following that interview, the author Heidi Hollis sort of attempted to claim that she had not only discovered this historical phenomena, but that she had come up with the name of shadow people as well. I'm not so certain about this claim, obviously, but it's sort of confirmed that she thought of the name the Hat Man for one specific sort of shadow person that people see. But I mean, 
That's sort of like, I don't know, saying you came up with the title bagel pizza after you stuck some mozzarella cheese and tomato sauce on a bagel and then stuck it in the oven. Or maybe a better analogy is that friend who just discovered Doctor Who or something and tries to tell everyone about this worldwide phenomena that's been going on for over 20 years. Except this one has been discussed since the time of the ancient Greeks, just never with a fancy hat and a trench coat. Anyways, Heidi Hollis claims that these shadow people are actually linked to aliens and are being used by them, or even our aliens, here on Earth to spread evil and take over humanity or something. I can't seem to find out exactly what it is that these aliens are doing here on Earth from her website. However, I have been told numerous times that the only way to stop them and arm myself against them is to buy her numerous books on Amazon. So, you know, a good job if you can get it. Look, we're just going to dispense with the idea of shadow people as alien creatures or multidimensional things for this episode. We have an upcoming special on aliens, I promise you. And the multidimensional or vibrational argument we've already sort of covered, and I'm sure it will come up again. It's like the favorite argument for people. There is just no evidence for these claims, and in many ways they are impossible to refute or verify because they're not scientific in their premises. Again, what makes something scientific versus not, in my estimation at least, is that taken, or that standard basically, put out by Karl Popper, and we talk about it in the episode called The Science Machine. So, can this hypothesis be refuted? Is the hypothesis stated plainly enough to be testable? Or is it a logical problem that has no real answer, that can be determined through testing? In other words, are we trying to disprove a hypothesis, or are we trying to prove one? If we're trying to prove one, then we aren't doing good science. And in many cases, the search for shadow people evidence is the search for evidence of their existence, not evidence to overcome the scientific arguments as to what they are. So again, we can get into the whole grand unified paranormal theory thing, And we can talk about it maybe on a future episode, but I think discussing it here just kind of muddles the waters and isn't really instructive or helpful in any way. I mean, the argument ends up being infinitely regressive, right? It's like, oh, well, the shadow people are actually aliens, but they appear as shadow people because that's what the aliens want. Well, then, okay. Like, everything that the aliens want then can be imposed on us, right? There's no rules anymore. It's Descartes' demon all over again. In many ways, the shadow person's story is very similar to other nighttime terrors, which have a very long history with different cultures ascribing different scenarios or mechanisms to explain what we now know are sleep disorders. So things like sleep paralysis, night terrors, or even simple nightmares or dreams themselves. There's a lot of various ground we could cover on an episode about shadow people if we wanted to get into the explanation of them as a physiological response to lack of oxygen during sleep, such as that caused by sleep apnea or even something like a night terror or sleep paralysis, and all the various other things that may be explicable in similar terms. For instance, one very commonly linked idea to that of the shadow person as a misreading or incorrect attribution of nightmares or sleep paralysis symptoms is that of alien abductions, or maybe more correctly, alien watching at nighttime. This is the scenario where the person feels as if they are stuck in bed, but then there is some other being or person in the room who they can see almost flitting into and out of existence although at some times they do appear to be solid. We aren't going to get into the similarity ideas or arguments too much on this episode, since shadow people have become a waking phenomena as well. And this isn't an episode on abductions, although I promise one is forthcoming. But the shadow person's story just wouldn't be complete without some description of sleep paralysis and the history of ghostly or demonic explanations for various sleep disorders. And frankly, from a personal point of view here, 
If there's one paranormal thing that fits the sleep disorder paradigm, it is definitely shadow people. So okay, we're going to break up the shadow person topic into kind of two large chunks. First are shadow people that seem to appear at nighttime, and the possible argument that this is being caused by sleep paralysis symptoms. And the second are shadow people during the daytime, which has a slightly less scientifically rigorous argument, but still a pretty interesting one. So first off, I want to start with an interesting narrative case about these shadow people at nighttime that my research team found for me. The story goes as follows, and I found it on shadowpeople.dotster.com. So I hope that the person who wrote this, if you're listening right now, it's all right that I use your story. And if you don't want me to use it, please email me and I will just cut it from future episodes. It was posted online, so I'm assuming it's all right to repeat here, and there was no contact person listed to email about permission on this particular experience. Anyways, here goes. Quote, Approximately two to three weeks ago, I came home from work to find that my nine-year-old daughter had accidentally removed the finish on my kitchen table with nail polish remover. I was angry and sent her to her room. Her father and brother were asleep, and I was downstairs doing bills. When I finished, I made my way upstairs. As I walked up the stairs, I heard what I thought was my daughter chanting. As I got closer to her room, I realized that she was not chanting. She was saying, leave me alone, leave me alone, again and again. When my daughter saw me, she jumped in sheer fear. I never saw such a look of fear on my daughter. I, of course, sent her into our bed. The next morning, I asked her to explain in detail what she had seen. She explained that she saw a shadow on her desk. It had a hood from a side view, then turned its head towards her to peer at her. She stated seeing red eyes. She also said there was another shadow that was tall, with long legs, and moved quickly to hide. When my daughter told it to leave her alone, she heard, Shh, shh, shh. I did not see anything. I do listen to my daughter and believe her. I researched online. It explains all different types of shadow people. Apparently, the hood shadow person is the most evil. What the heck? My daughter also stated hearing the footsteps first and the dog barking outside. Then everything became quiet. What do they want? Why do they lurk around my girl? End quote. The story is pretty scary, especially if you're recording a podcast at night by yourself while your wife is out watching movies with her friends. Cool. Anyways, it's pretty commonly seen in all of these narrative cases about nighttime terrors that there's a feeling of dread or paralysis, or maybe the person doesn't even notice paralysis, but they're stuck to bed, like they don't want to move. And then they'll see one or two beings that are black that seem to have an outline or something, and then there's some noise. And this idea that she talks about, this classification of shadow people, is also pretty common out there. So there's different types of shadow people. There are those that are looked like humans, and there's all kinds of different types of them as well. So there's the hat man who shows up wearing a hat, I guess. There is the monk who wears like a monk's robe and has the, the not a hood necessarily, but something like it, like a habit, I suppose. There are black mists or moving shadows. There are animal-shaped ghosts. And there's also those that are maybe sort of specific to different cultures. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later. But that one with the hood that she discussed there is very reminiscent of the figure of death, right? This black hooded figure that just stands and kind of watches and waits for you to mistake something 
so that they can take you to the afterlife. It's pretty scary. One thing that I think is kind of funny, though, is that she says, what the heck? Well, I, so the person who wrote this mentioned a name. I'm not going to say the name here, but it's a female and she's watching her daughter. But yeah, saying what the heck just kind of cuts into the terror for you, right? It's like a knife through hot butter there. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that historically the idea of a shadow-like ghost or shade or something was actually quite common in that probably it was not invented or discovered in 2002 on Coast to Coast AM. And when I say shade, it refers more to the European idea here. And it's not entirely clear whether or not shade is some sort of a poetic description of a ghost or literally means a shadow. But there is evidence to support the latter idea, which we'll get into in a second. One people who did in fact discuss these things as literal shadow people were Native Americans, just like on Coast to Coast AM. And in particular, I found some interesting stories about the Choctaw Indians, although I'm sure there are plenty more out there. The Choctaw Indians are a people who, pre-colonization, held territory in what is today the modern southern United States, from Louisiana to Florida, basically. They have a belief in what are known as the inside and outside shadow of a person, or in their language, which I am definitely going to destroy here, they call it the Shilup and the Shalambish. The inside shadow, or shalup, is the soul of the person, while the outside shadow is the one we see every day. After death, the shalambish, or your outside shadow, would wander the earth, scaring your friends and family from the place where you had died, a practice that probably helped them in the past survive and keep away from dangerous places. The Choctaw also had stories of other shadow people, such as Neluso Chito, the great black being, who would possess those who were depressed and over time consume their souls or the legitimately scary Nelusa Falaya, who looked like a very tall, thin man, but who moved by slouting on his stomach like a giant snake. As if Florida wasn't scary enough. The idea of a ghost or the soul being linked to the shadow, or the darker side of humans or death, was also common in European thought. There's a little bit of a problem with translation here, of course, as I said earlier. For example, in the Divine Comedy of Dante Alighieri, He uses the word ombra to mean both a shadow of an object, as well as the shade or ghostly vestiges of a person. This quote on the subject is from the University of Texas at Austin's phenomenal website on the Divine Comedy called Dante Worlds. This is discussing Canto 25 from Purgatory. Quote, The Italian word ombra in Dante's lexicon means both shadow, as in the shadow cast by a body, and shade, a term for the form of the soul in the afterlife. On the Terrace of Lust, as Dante's very real body prepares for its most challenging test. The poet, and this is an aside, but the poet is Virgil, if you have not read the Divine Comedy, shows, via a lecture by Statius, how the two meanings of ombra combine to encapsulate the fundamental relationship between life and afterlife. When the soul leaves the body, Statius explains it impresses the body's form on the surrounding air, as saturated air is adorned with colors of a rainbow, and the resulting virtual body follows the spirit just as a flame follows fire. This new form, therefore, goes by the name of shade, or shadow, ombra, as a shadow follows, and repeats the form of a real body, so the shade takes on all bodily parts and functions. The word ombra, by exemplifying the relationship between real bodies and the virtual representations after death, points to a basic premise of the Divine Comedy, the reciprocal bond between this world and the hereafter. Individuals, through their actions, determine the state of their souls for eternity, 
while Dante's vision of the afterlife reflects and potentially shapes the world of time and history. End quote. And this idea of a ghostly spirit or even a soul being a shadow of the previous person is pretty common throughout the ancient or pre-modern worlds. In ancient Egypt, for example, they considered the shadow to contain some portion of the person's essence or soul. In ancient Greek, Roman, and Hellenistic cultures, you had the idea that the land of the dead was the land of shadow, where shades floated down to Hades to float within the rivers and pools for all eternity. And in the modern world, we have ideas about what the shadow represents, right? I mean, we fight Shadow Link in The Legend of Zelda, or Shadow Sora in Kingdom Hearts to overcome our darker side. We believe that witches or vampires casted no shadows, or that the shadow could be sold to the devil or a demon. And this idea of the shade or ombra in Latin being a shadow person is more than just a simple translation error. In fact, they seem to have taken on some of the properties of souls in some tellings historically, and by them I mean the shadow. One explicit reference to this sort of idea, or at least of the soul being linked to the shadow of a person in the English historical tradition, comes from a fairy tale popular at the time. This is the story of the woman who had no shadow. It goes something like this. There was once a pastor's wife, who was afraid of getting pregnant. She was young and didn't want to be burdened by a family yet, so she went to an old witch who lived in the forest, and asked her for some way to delay having children. The witch told her that to do this she would need to take seven special stones to a mountain well, and throw them down in order to stop herself from getting pregnant. So the woman did as she was told, and with each drop of the stone thought she heard the shriek of a child. But with each stone thrown down the well, her dread and anxiety left her. Sometime later, as the pastor and his wife were walking through the town, he noticed that she didn't have a shadow. He became terribly frightened, and declared that his wife must have committed a terrible sin for God to have cursed her in this way, and that she must confess as soon as possible. When she finally did confess to what she did, he was so troubled and upset at what she had done that he declared she would only find God's forgiveness if a bed of flowers spread from the church roof, and he shunned her from his home. Many years later, the pastor is sitting at home with his new family, and a beggar woman comes to the door, who is promptly given food and refuge for the night. But come morning, she's found dead, and the pastor, seeing her face, recognizes her as his first wife who he had shunned. At the exact moment he sees the face, his children shout, Come to the front, Father! There are flowers growing from the roof. And this idea of witches or shadow ghosts or shadow spirits being linked is a common one in the medieval period, and continued from that period onward. For instance, there is the story of Peter Schlemiel, who sold his soul to the devil for an endless bag of money, one of the many versions of the sell your soul to the devil story. But it isn't just as a version of a soul or some important part of our humanity that the shadow existed at this time. The idea of shadow spirit or shadow ghost continued from the time of Dante, although in some interesting ways. This is discussed in some detail in the book Magic and Religion in Medieval England, which says the following while discussing flying females or witches going to the Sabbath, or at least to drink some wine and party with demons. Quote, For other English churchmen, the mysterious flying beings had yet other names. One anonymous 14th century writer called them umbrari. This unusual Latin word was related to ombra, shadow, and it was used in earlier centuries to mean a necromancer. But in this text, it seems to mean a being, not necessarily human, who goes about at night. Shadow people is perhaps a better translation. The priest should ask his penitent if he believes men in umbrari go about. However, it can be believed without sin 
that demons deceive people in such a way that they think the demons are fashioning themselves into the forms of human beings. End quote. The book goes on to discuss other similar sorts of shadowy beings, specifically those named by the monk Robert Ripon as Phytones or Phytonise, who rode those afflicted at night by sticking a broom handle or something like a piece of wood into their mouths and riding them as if they're animals through the air to other homes to steal wine and food from the cellars. And although these beings were originally female, they stopped having this female connotation or description as time went on. I think this section of history is interesting for a couple of reasons. First off, it shows with more detail that people were describing shadow people, or at least ghosts as shades or shadows of their previous selves, as far back as the Middle Ages in English, and even farther back in American Indian legends. So like, no, claims to have discovered this phenomena or invented the term are just as true as Peggy Hill claiming she invented a delicious dish of spaghetti and fried meat spheres and red sauce that she has titled Spapeggy and Meatballs. At most, you recoined or reintroduced a term that was once very popularly used to describe ghosts, and a particular sort of shadow ghost which was linked to the shadow or soul idea we just detailed. Okay, end rant. The very intriguing idea, at least for the team and I, with these sections, is this idea that shadow people could be female versus male is a really interesting one to me. In modern telling, shadow people are almost always male, with interesting variants existing such as the monk or the hat man. But in the past, shadow ghosts or shadow people could very much be female, and in fact for a period appeared to be exclusively female or even animal in form. I think in many ways this actually has something to do with human sexuality progressing from the Middle Ages, at least a little bit. We've talked about how shadow people experiences at nighttime are likely linked to sleep paralysis, since the descriptions are almost exactly the same as those that we see from people who have been shown to suffer from sleep paralysis through medical testing. For example, those who suffer from narcolepsy have a very high rate of sleep paralysis, since their disorder is linked to the incorrect signaling between sleeping stages, which is ultimately what appears to cause sleep paralysis, as we'll get into in a little bit. And one interesting historical issue with sleep paralysis is its explanations over time. Many cultures have different explanations for sleep paralysis. For instance, the idea of a nightmare was literally meant to be a shadowy horse who sat on one's chest while in a state of sleep paralysis, unable to breathe or move but seemingly being awake. This morphed throughout different cultures, with it sometimes being an ogre, or a demon, or maybe nothing that you could see at all. One interesting version of this sleep paralysis demon, though, is the succubus or incubus a demon whose sole interest was having sex with a sleeping person. Now, the reason I say that the idea of female shadow people or sleep paralysis hallucinations have maybe stopped with our acceptance of sexuality ever so slightly is that we no longer suggest that what is scientifically termed nighttime emissions, but which is commonly referred to as a wet dream, are caused by demons coming into your home to collect your precious teenage DNA, but are caused by thinking about how nicely that girl in your math class's braces go with her hair. And since male emissions are the only ones that actually emit anything tangible, just maybe we've stopped looking for demons to explain those embarrassing trips to the laundromat. Ghostly ectoplasms aside, different cultures and time periods within the same culture do have different demons or ghosts or whatever to explain sleep paralysis symptoms. One really good piece on this the team dug up for me was from the proceedings of a postgraduate research seminar in Japanese studies from Oxford Brookes University in the United Kingdom by Anna Shigolova. It starts off with a really great quote from the work Sleep by Murakami Haruki, describing the female protagonist's sleep paralysis symptoms. Quote, 
I remember with perfect clarity that first night I lost the ability to sleep. I was having a repulsive dream. A dark, slimy dream. I do not remember what it was about, but I do remember how it felt. Ominous and terrifying. I woke up at the climactic moment. Came fully awake from the start. As if something had dragged me back at the last moment from a fatal turning point. Had I remained immersed in the dream for another second, I would have been lost forever. After I awoke, my breath came in painful gasps for a time. My arms and legs felt paralyzed. I lay there immobilized, listening to my own labored breathing, as if I were stretched out full length on the floor of a huge cavern. End quote. The work goes over some fascinating personal experiences of the author in working in Japan and talking to students about their personal sleep paralysis symptoms. In Japan, the term for sleep paralysis, or the phenomena anyways, is called kanashibari. Ms. Shigolova describes how her students talk about the same symptoms as Americans seem to have, but with different causes. One common one is the main character in the ring, another is an unknown neighbor or random person, and others are the familiar ghostly apparitions. Along with the Japanese experience of sleep paralysis is a sound, almost a ringing, but which could also be any repetitive sound it seems, such as laughter or footsteps or screeching whines. It's interesting that the visual or auditory symptoms aren't the same as in the U.S., but the physical ones are, which to me suggests a cultural link as well as a biological one. But of course, true believers will argue that it is the ghost or demon or whatever making us see what we want. An argument I think is ridiculous and untenable, as I've already said. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Regardless of that infinitely regressive argument, sleep paralysis is pretty different around the world. But again, it's only different in the auditory or visual hallucinations, not in the physical symptoms. This is relatively strong evidence for a cultural connection to popular views at the time, so a biological or physiological explanation, and not a paranormal one, and is laid out in a lot of good papers, but particularly the one by Chain et al. in Consciousness and Cognition is very interesting. So, again, this culture, the culture that you're living in, changes the way that you see shadow people. So in Newfoundland in Canada, for instance, sleep paralysis is described as old hag syndrome. For the giant old woman, people claim to be sitting on their chests at night. In China, it's called being pressed by a ghost. Again, with all the same physiological symptoms, but not the same hallucinogenic ones. And in the same culture, our explanations for sleep paralysis have changed with time. So in American and European cultures, the once popular explanation of a witch, or a witch's demonic helper being the cause of sleep paralysis symptoms, has now been replaced with people seeing shadow beings or aliens in their room. In fact, sleep paralysis appears to have been described in the Salem Witch Trials as part of evidence of witchcraft. Take this deposition, for example, as evidence against the accused witch Susanna Martin. Quote, The deposition of Robert Downer of Salisbury, aged 52 years. Several years ago, Susanna Martin, the then-wife of George Martin, 
being brought to court for a witch. The said Downer, so Robert Downer, having some words with her. She at that time attending Mrs. Light at Salisbury. This deponent, among other things, told her he believed that she was a witch, by which was said or witnessed against her, at which she seemingly not well affected, said that at a some other time a she-devil would fetch him away shortly, at which this despondent was not much moved. But at night, as he lay in his bed in his own house, alone, there came in his window the likeness of a cat, and by and by come up to his bed, took fast hold of his throat, and lay hard upon him a considerable while, and was like to throttle him. Eventually he realized that he should try the name of the Holy Ghost, since this was a witch trying to attack him. And so he said, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, get out of here, and it did. Now, if that previous section seemed pretty unhearable or nearly unreadable for me, it's because the education system in Massachusetts during the time of the witch trials wasn't super great, and so their writing is really hard to understand. So let's just do this as modern English. So Robert Downer of Salisbury, who was 52 years at the time of giving this deposition, claimed that Susanna Martin, who at that point was the wife of George Martin, Basically, like they had an altercation in the street where he was like, you're a witch. And she said, well, if I'm a witch, then I'm going to send a she-devil after you tonight. And he was like, well, whatever, that's not going to happen. But then when he was at nighttime in his bed, he saw a cat creep up into his room, get on his chest and nearly choke him to death. A scenario that I have nearly every night with my cat, Chippy. So I don't know, maybe Katie's a witch or something. I'm not super sure at this point. Anyways, this... Scenario made him really frightened and things, but as he's sitting there, he thought, oh, Susanna Martin today threatened me and said that she was a witch and was going to send a devil to my house. So he figured, well, I'll say the name of the Holy Ghost and it'll get out of here. And when it did, it left. And the next morning, he didn't say anything about it because he was too afraid. But, you know, when she went to jail for someone else claiming that she was a witch, he jumped right on that bandwagon and came out and said he had this scary experience. All right, enough history. What is sleep paralysis? Well, a good description of it is from the paper by Chain et al. in their abstract. Here it is in its entirety. Quote, Hypnagogic and hypnopompic experiences, or HHEs, accompanying sleep paralysis, are often cited as sources of accounts of supernatural nocturnal assaults and paranormal experiences. Descriptions of such experiences are remarkably consistent across time and cultures, and consistent also with their known mechanisms of REM states, an REM being rapid eye movement sleep. A three-factor structural model of HHEs based on their relationships both to cultural narratives and REM neurophysiology is developed and tested with several large samples. One factor, labeled intruder, consisting of sense presence, fear, and auditory and visual hallucinations, is conjectured to originate in a hypervigilant state initiated in the midbrain. Another factor, incubus, comprising pressure on the chest, breathing difficulties, and pain, is attributed to effects of hyperpolarization of motoneurons on perceptions of respiration. These two factors have in common an implied alien other, consistent with occult narratives identified in numerous contemporary and historical cultures. A third factor, labeled unusual bodily experiences, consisting of floating or flying sensations, out-of-body experiences, and feelings of bliss, is related to physically impossible experiences generated by conflicts of endogenous and exogenous activation related to body position, orientation, and movement. 
Implications of this last factor for understanding of orientational primacy and self-consciousness are considered. Central features of the model developed here are consistent with recent work on hallucinations associated with hypnosis and schizophrenia. End quote. So to unscience that description, sleep paralysis is the condition where you seemingly awake from sleep only to be unable to move your body. You may feel an intense fear or panic. You may experience difficulty breathing or feel as if pressure is on your chest. And you may also see something in the room with you. Biologically, what is occurring, at least in theory, is that your brain during sleep has turned off or turned on a bunch of features that are useful for us while sleeping. Specifically, this occurs during rapid eye movement or REM sleep, a state that occurs throughout sleeping in cycles of about 90 to 120 minutes, and where your brain is firing off in the visual centers of the brain like crazy, creating dreams and other effects. Now, sleep cycles between REM and non-REM sleep, with non-REM sleep being the period where your brain sort of doesn't fire as much and where dreams will not occur. Sleep paralysis occurs during REM sleep specifically, and we believe happens basically because some parts of your brain wake up while others stay in their REM sleep functions. We don't have the exact mechanism understood to date as to why this occurs, like with anything with the brain, frankly. However, the major thinking on this is that it occurs because of some disturbance between how your brain is signaling that you should wake up versus that you should stay asleep, or even in the signaling to say which sleep state you are coming into. In people with sleep paralysis, it turns out that they do not block outside stimuli as well as an average brain does during sleep, meaning they are more easily awakened by external stimuli, for instance. It's also been found that they have shorter or disturbed sleep patterns. So their REM sleep periods may be fragmented as opposed to occurring at regular intervals between non-REM sleep and for long periods of time, like we said, 90 to 120 minutes. This is supported by the fact that sleep paralysis is more common in people with diagnosed disorders of sleep patterns, such as narcolepsy. Another factor, potentially, is that the ability for the brain to tell itself to wake up versus to stay asleep may be out of whack in people with sleep paralysis. The thinking goes that the cells which tell you to wake up are underactive, while those that tell you to stay asleep may be overactive, and that is that motor neuron section there in the abstract. This causes partial waking, and with the increased ease of being awoken by external stimuli, means that there are more chances to be partially awoken, only to have your brain not overcome the boundaries required to become fully awakened. So, kind of similar to, you're able to get halfway to awake, but not all the way to awake. So some parts of your body that are more easy to wake up, such as your sensory apparatuses, get up, but parts of your brain that have been shut off and are still stuck in that sleeping state, such as your middle brain and the parts of your brain that are responsible for things like how your body sense, like your body map is put out there, are being changed. And we're going to get into all those parts in the next section here. Now we do know that at the very least, there is a genetic component here to sleep paralysis. So something biologically is definitely happening with sleep paralysis, even if you don't buy the idea that, you know, sleeping paralysis when you see a shadow person or an alien is necessarily a biological thing only. All right, so what causes the symptoms of sleep paralysis? Well, during REM sleep, your brain paralyzes your movements so that you won't act out what is happening in dreams. Your brain also shuts off your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex which is our logic center, basically. And so your dreams or whatever become wacky as hell, but your experience of them becomes very vivid and real, like in a dream. Your breathing also may appear to be more labored, since you aren't used to being awake to breathe 
During REM sleep, where shallow, rapid breathing is the norm, and where things like sleep apnea or blocked airways might be exacerbating your troubled sleeping patterns in the first place. So you kind of partially wake up and you notice that you're not breathing normally, but it's actually how you breathe every night when you sleep anyways. You're just not normally awake and noticing it. Your inability to breathe and that sense of helplessness causes your brain to then just pretty much go into extreme threat level response, a state called threat hypervigilance. This is basically a state where your mind perceives imminent danger to your body, causing it to go into a heightened sensory state where it scans the surroundings for any particular threat and brings out the fight-or-flight response. It's this hypervigilant state that causes the anxiety attacks often accompanying sleep paralysis, and may even contribute to the sense of there being some negative force or energy attacking your body, with your brain basically doing somersaults to try and find any threat that it can detect in order to stop the source of danger which in this case is the feeling of paralysis and suffocation being caused by your own body. Interestingly, hypervigilance causes you to search the surrounding environment during the perceived danger for anything that may be reminiscent to past threats or traumas, potentially being the reason why cultural items such as the character from The Ring in Japan or witches in the 1700s may have appeared to be the culprits of such attacks. And these hypervigilant periods can be extremely vivid and convincing. I mean, this is basically the state that people think of when they talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, where a soldier maybe is set off by a loud noise and thinks she or he is back on the battlefield. So the accompanying panic responses and potential hallucinations on top of that, from still being within the dream state, can create all kinds of extremely terrifying situations for those suffering from sleep paralysis. Another section of the brain which doesn't function normally during sleep is the temporoparadial junction. This part of the brain is responsible for creating our sensory map of our bodies. So sort of knowing where all your limbs are at any given time based on the sensory input from the limbs. It is also responsible for our sense of self versus other, and it's turned off during REM sleep. Now, there have been some hypotheses put forward that this is what is responsible for things like out-of-body experiences, for which there's actually relatively good evidence since we can cause an out-of-body experience by disrupting this part of the brain. It's also likely that this part of the brain is responsible for things like phantom limb pains or feelings in those who have lost an arm or a leg. And at least one team of researchers from UC San Diego have proposed that this same turned-off region of the brain may be responsible for the sense of an other or being in the room during sleep paralysis. Particularly, they suggest that the same phantom limb syndrome may be occurring to the entire body, causing a mental projection of your entire body map to be visual to you during sleep paralysis. So people partially wake up or gain some control of their senses during REM sleep, but the brain doesn't turn back on all the parts. You notice that you can hardly breathe, causing you to panic, causing it to become harder to breathe, causing you to panic even worse. Your brain starts to hunt for some perceived source of the paralysis and troubled breathing, when your hypervigilant state notices some other presence in the room. Your brain then conflates these different factors together causing you to either see directly or sense a shadowy outline of a human body in the room, who is the source of your paralysis and trying to suffocate you. Eventually, you either wake up fully or fall back asleep, with a shadow figure never fully being capable of suffocating you. You wake up, throw your wetted sheets into the laundry, and buy a few of those St. Michael-scented candles they sell at the dollar store, and you go about with your normal daily activities. So, okay. I think we've outlined how sleep paralysis is something none of us listening, and at least this host, never want to experience. 
Interestingly, though, it's been found that having a logical response to sleep paralysis, or at least knowing beforehand that it is a possibility, and knowing the symptoms may cause the threat, hypervigilance, and panic associated with waking up partially paralyzed to be far less pronounced, or at least help to deal with that panic. This method is known as meditation relaxation therapies, and although there is anecdotal evidence for its effectiveness, there are not yet any randomized clinical trials to prove its use. The most effective way to deal with sleep paralysis, though, appears to be having better sleeping patterns and sleep hygiene. Basically, get enough sleep, go to sleep at the same time each night, and try to sleep in a position that allows for good airflow. I think that the sleep paralysis argument is probably the most interesting or convincing one out there for the nighttime version of the Shadow People story. And this type of shadow person encounter seems to be far and away the most common I've found online. The second most common, though, is feeling a presence or sensing something behind you or in the room with you, and out of the corner of your eye or as you just turn your head, seeing a black shape which quickly jumps out of the way or seemingly disappears. Now, as a person who has many times mistaken a bag on the floor or a shadow for my cat, I'm probably not the most reliable person when it comes to sensing the outside world with my peripheral vision. But there have been some very interesting studies suggesting that the shadow person phenomena, where you see a black human-like shape, or even a blob out of the corner of your eye, is potentially just a trick of the body and the mind, even during wakefulness. Interestingly, it seems that we can actually stimulate the brain to sense a shadow person in the lab, although we discovered it by accident. Doctors at the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland led this research, and were basically trying to treat a 22-year-old woman with epilepsy by stimulating the left temporoparietal junction, the part of the brain we talked about earlier about sleep paralysis being the cause of shadow people during the sleep encounters. When stimulated with electrodes, the patient claimed to sense a sinister shadow figure behind her, who copied her actions. Here is a section from the study published in Nature in 2006. Quote, When stimulated at this region, in a supine position, the patient had the impression that somebody was behind her. Further stimulation induced the same experience, with the patient describing the person as young and of indeterminate sex, a shadow who did not speak or move, and whose position beneath her back was identical to her own. Quote, he is behind me, almost at my body, but I do not feel it, end quote. During the next stimulation, the patient sat and embraced her knees with her arms. She noted that the man was now also sitting, and that he was clasping her in his arms which he described as an unpleasant feeling. Further stimulations were applied while the seated patient performed a naming task, using a card held in her right hand. She again reported the presence of the sitting person, this time displaced behind her to her right and attempting to interfere with the execution of her task. Quote, he wants to take the card. He doesn't want me to read. End quote. Similar effects were observed for different positions and postures when stimuli exceeding 10 milliamps were applied to the same site on the left temporoparietal junction, end quote. So, pretty creepy what the brain can do when hit with electrodes. And obviously it doesn't need to be electrodes causing this. It can be simple misfiring of the temporoparietal junction, or some damage to the head, or even genetics that causes this region to be overactive or something. Obviously, further study needs to happen. But it is extremely interesting that we can make this shadow person thing happen in a laboratory. Another argument I've sort of hinted at in previous episodes is that it might just be a physical reaction to the eyeball being messed with or extremely tired. For instance, meth addicts evidently report quite frequent interactions with shadow people, likely due to both an increased paranoia due to their drug, a lack of sleep from being tweaked all the time, 
and rapid and more often blinking caused again by the meth, making their eyes see all kinds of weird shapes and things in the corners of their peripheral vision. Now, obviously, the vast majority of people who see shadow people are not on methamphetamines, but it is an interesting connection to a set of physical conditions on a population. Another more tenable argument is that these sightings are caused by infrasound, and specifically an infrasound wave at the resonant frequency of the human eyeball, maybe causing us to have slight defects and therefore observe what we take to be shadow people, which in reality are our eyes jiggling in our skulls like ping-pong balls. This argument was made famous by Vic Tandy in his paper published in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. The story goes that Vic was working late at night one evening alone in a haunted place in Warwick in the United Kingdom, when he began to feel extremely anxious and started seeing weird dark shapes in his peripheral vision, but which, when he actually went to go look, were not there. The next day, though, when he was working on a piece of equipment, he noticed that his tools kept vibrating like crazy when they were attached to certain pieces of metal, something that suggested some unseen pressure or sound wave that he wasn't detecting, but which was definitely in the room. Eventually, he found that this was caused by a fan in the room, which was emitting a frequency of sound at approximately 19 hertz, which is quite close to the resonant frequency of the eyeball, which is 18 hertz as determined by NASA, a piece of information obtained to ensure astronaut safety. They have since published a few works investigating this effect and some other haunted places that Vic Tandy and his crew actually investigated. In all cases, finding that the frequency does in fact appear to be present in the haunted areas they have investigated. Which, as far as I can see, are only three, but it's pretty interesting that they are present. Interestingly, though, it's not just the frequency being present, but also the design of the room, which causes an amplified enough signal of sound to cause ghost sightings or anxiety. So even though your eye may jiggle a little bit when exposed to infrasound near 18 hertz, it has to be amplified to such a degree that the effect becomes noticeable and pronounced for a dark blob or shadow person to be seen. This only happens in rooms with the correct length and widths. It may also make one part of a room have a stronger amplitude of sound wave than another, similar to how different rooms have different acoustic properties. And infrasound is something that affects us in other spooky ways too. This quote is from an article on infrasound in Popular Science on using infrasound as a weapon in wartime. Quote, People don't usually think of infrasound as sound at all. You can hear very low-frequency sounds at levels above 88 to 100 decibels down to a few cycles per second, but you can't get any tonal information out of it below about 20 hertz. It mostly just feels like beating pressure waves. And like any other sound, if presented at levels above 140 decibels, it is going to cause pain. But the primary effects of infrasound are not on your ears, but on the rest of your body. Because infrasound can affect people's whole bodies, it has been under serious investigation by military and research organizations since the 1950s, largely the Navy and NASA, to figure out the effects of low-frequency vibration on people stuck on large, noisy ships with huge throbbing motors, or on top of rockets launching into space. As with seemingly any bit of military research, it is the subject of speculation and devious rumors. Among the most infamous developers of infrasonic weapons was a Russian-born French researcher named Vladimir Gavro. According to popular media at the time, and far too many current under-fact-checked web pages, Gavro started to investigate reports of nausea in his lab that supposedly disappeared once a ventilator fan was disabled. He then launched into a series of experiments on the effects of infrasound on human subjects, 
with results, as reported in the press, ranging from subjects needing to be saved in the nick of time from an infrasonic envelope of death that damaged their internal organs to people having their organs converted to jelly by exposure to an infrasonic whistle. Damn. More recently, Christopher French from Goldsmiths at the University of London College, and a person who is a bit of a personal hero of mine, built a haunted room, one with infrasonic generators pumping sound from 18.9 to 22.3 hertz and electromagnetic pulses at 50 microteslas, significantly higher than normal levels from things like radios or TV sets. They had 79 people enter the room, and this is what Mr. French had to say about the results. Quote, most people reported at least some slightly odd sensation, such as a presence or feeling dizzy, and some reported terror, which we hadn't expected. Terror is obviously quite an extreme reaction, and we only anticipated getting reports of mildly anomalous sensations in the context of this particular experiment. End quote. However, his original hope that EMFs played some role in these responses were not fully validated to the researcher's liking. Still, it is a tantalizing clue in a very interesting experiment that, honestly, I would love to do someday. Maybe in 10 years, when I make enough money at work, I can build myself a haunted room and invite listeners to check it out. That will be my midlife crisis. Maybe I can even put flames on the outside so it looks like it goes really fast. Anyways, I think this episode has a few really key takeaways. We haven't disproved shadow people. I mean, there are cases where people claim that the things move objects, or are seen in the daytime full-on. And there are cases where things get more extreme, into the realm of possession or attack in a more profound ways than can be explained by sleep paralysis. But I do think that the vast majority of cases can be explained by the arguments laid out here, namely sleep paralysis and normal problems with our ability to distinguish and understand physiological effects on our sensory apparatus. I mean, you would never know that infrasound was affecting you, or even present in a given room, unless you had a tool to measure it. So I would wager it is at least partially responsible for some of the daytime sightings of the black shadow in my periphery variety. Another topic we didn't really get into, but which is frankly an important one for everyone to realize, is that hallucinations are what we may like to call bad sensory information, or mistakes in our sight, hearing, smell, whatever, are significantly more common than people realize. I mean, we very rarely discuss these things with others for fear of being told we're losing our minds, but almost everyone has had some sensory mistake or misperception in their lifetimes. Whether it's a dream that seemed almost too real, or misremembering the name of a family of bears, or being certain that a given person was at a given event, or even seeing stars after strenuous activity or fuzz when you rub your eyeballs too hard and for too long. What we sense is always being understood and translated by the brain into digestible and understandable pieces. It so it only makes sense that sometimes it would get things wrong. And so I think in many ways, if we all accepted that this stuff happens more frequently than we imagine it does, maybe we could talk about these things in a sensible way and get to the bottom of some of these things, or at least maybe find some commonality about them. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I'd like to take a second to thank our latest patrons, Martine and the Not Alone Podcast. Your support means more than you know, and helps keep the show going. And thank you to my listeners, of course. We have gotten four entries to the Be a Mad Scientist contest this month, and we will be discussing the winners on next week's episode. I am really excited, and hope that the next one will bring in even more entries. We'll be back in a week with the next roundtable. The logos of this show were designed by Carrie Shaheen, and we now have merchandise available up on our website through threadless.com. So if you want a cool shirt or mug or something, go check it out. And thank you once again for downloading the show and listening. 
See you next time. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 